this time, and we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. One last time, I've been marching through this, this, basically just the first chapter of this book for the past four weeks. This is our fourth sermon out of 1 Timothy chapter 1 now, and we'll finish out the chapter. I was sitting up here debating on how much to read, and yet the scripture is not just a token thing that we kind of do here at the church. It's the central focus of what this, uh, this time is. The first half of each Sunday is our time to give to God. The second half is our time to hear from Him as well. And so we'll kind of review through the text as we go through this. We'll only focus the preaching on the last three verses, but just do the review of what we've been covering over the past few weeks and, um, and do that as we, kind of as we read through here. So you can remain seated for this part. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read this entire first chapter. It's only 20 verses, but I kind of make a few comments along the way as well. Just appreciated this chance to be able to preach in this way. It's been a, a wonderful time for me. And just a lot of things in this first chapter I never even realized myself until studying it and figuring these things out uh, about what God was trying to tell us through the book. And I hope, we'll, I hope that has come through the preaching. But then verse number one, we'll, we'll start all the way back at verse number one with the writer, the recipient, and what the message of the book is about. So 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son, my genuine son, a carbon copy of me in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And the first sermon was really just laying out who is Timothy and what's his call and how can, how can God use a man like this? Well, it's just by taking on what the leader taught you before, who is just a disciple of Christ. And his job then became to be a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what he was left there to do. Verse 3 is, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So here's this young man, Timothy, a, a learner of Paul, becoming this stand-in pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul says, When I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So he says, Your job is to combat these false teachers, with the actual truth, and here's what God is trying to protect. Here's what God really wants to get across. Not these endless genealogies. Don't get your theology from the he begat, he begat, he begat sections of Scripture. Secret hidden codes that are only found by unlocking some secret hidden meaning of Scripture. That's nonsense, Paul says. The end of a commandment, verse 5, is charity. I mean, here's real Christianity. If somebody really gets it, then here's, here's what the end of it is, charity. Out of a pure heart and, and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Not something that's fake or put on, but something that's real. Verse 6, from which some, having swerved or shot from the hip, have turned aside unto vain jangling, empty noise, desiring to be teachers of the law. Verse 7, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And here's the Old Testament law. Here's how it relates to us 
still today as Christians. Verse 9, knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, and here he is just going through the Ten Commandments, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, well, then that's what the law does. It just shows them they're breaking God's law. But, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's the good news, the good gospel of the blessing-giving God. That's the thing you need to preach, Timothy. And verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Looked at this last week. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This gospel I'm preaching about is not just something we believe, but God used it on me, verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Other texts of Scripture show that Paul was just the most, most ruthless killer who would hunt people down and cause them to blaspheme. And Paul says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. It was overflowing abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the worst sinner who ever lived, Paul said, and Christ saved me. You think there's no hope for you? Well, if there's hope for Saul to turn him into the apostle Paul, then there's hope for you. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, verse 16 says, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. And, and when the gospel changes people's lives, it's like Paul responds in verse number 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And our Father, as we read through the text and as we understand what the previous weeks have said, today we approach it one more time with open hearts, seeking as a congregation to hear from you. And we may not be in the place of Hymenius and Alexander. There may not be anybody that stands against your word who, who stands in opposition to it. But if there are, I pray that you unchain their hearts today. I pray that they will not hold the word uh, or suppress the word, as you say in Romans 1. I pray that they will give it free reign in their hearts, that they'll be open to allow your spirit to convict, and they'll respond to that conviction. I pray sincerely, dear Lord, for those who are like Hymenius and Alexander, that they will learn not to blaspheme. 
in the same way that you're trying to teach them. And I pray that Christians will respond to your grace once more this morning as we, as we hear the truth and as we get to understand sound doctrine, as we, as we focus this morning on the gospel, as we're hearing it preached this morning. Dear God, I pray that you keep us in the fight, this good fight, this fight that's worth fighting today. Help us stay strong in that which is most worthy. And bless us as we do that um, and are encouraged in that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Life sometimes feels like a fight. And if you're doing it right, it's a fight, fight worth fighting. Sometimes there are fights that are worth fighting. And for me, I had a fight with my truck yesterday. And it's a fight worth fighting. Sometimes you got to do maintenance on your car. And it's hard work, but the whole purpose of it is that it's a good fight to be able to fix your car. And I had to replace some parts on that. Last week, I had Brother Kyle come help me, and it was, it was a, between the two of us with some of the tools that we had and some of the issues we were having with it and not having done these parts myself before. We were doing all kinds of things wrong. It took us six, seven, eight hours together. And I was unscrewing something on top and going in the engine compartment, and I thought I had the right screw, screw, and Brother Kyle's underneath shifting things around and not really sure if I had the right screw or not. And I started unscrewing this one particular screw, and it's the one screw that holds the entire weight of a one-ton truck on these shocks, you know, that spring that's under all this pressure. Well, I thought I was releasing that to take it out of the way, but I was actually releasing the spring. And here he is underneath. I get the screw off, and bing, it shoots and makes a dent in my concrete, and it almost kills poor Brother Kyle, who's helping me out. But I didn't make that mistake twice. I got the right screws this next time. And what took two of us six, seven, eight hours to do one day, I was able to complete all by myself yesterday in just four, three or four hours. And it's much easier. And it was a fight that we fought the first time, but it's now resulted in a fixed truck. A mostly fixed truck. There's a few other things. But it's a fight worth fighting because the goal is, in, the end goal in mind saved me the $1,800 that the Ford dealership was going to charge me to do the same job that I bought the parts for about 300 bucks for. And it's a fight worth fighting to go under there and to spend a few hours because of the maintenance of the restoration that comes out on the other side. It's worth it. It's worth it because although it's difficult, what we're going for is a fixed truck. And anything worth having in life is going to be worth fighting for. If it's, if it's your family, if it's the walk for life like last week, that's a fight worth fighting. And praise the Lord watching the time-lapse videos of the, of the hundreds of thousands of people who are part of that walk for life, fighting for life, fighting to give a voice to the people who have no voice, those unborn children in the womb. And praise God for that. Praise God for a president who may not be doing everything right, may not be living a biblical Christian life, and yet, and yet I believe God has raised him up for such a time as this, who is using him in a mighty way to fight a good warfare, a noble fight that he is contributing to. And if you have, if you have children of your own, parenting is a fight worth fighting. It's, a, it's an effort that's worth putting time into and effort into and money into. And just like the mechanics of a car who are focusing on a car or a parent who's trying to raise children that will turn out right, just, just like this, this fight, 
it's not the fight that defines us. It's the product we're working for. A mechanic is, is not just, I as a Saturday mechanic was, am not known for fighting with my truck. It's the goal I'm after. That's why I do the fight. And as parents, we're protective and we're careful and we shield and we discipline and we help people, not because we want to, we want to fight the other people off of our children or fight our children in disciplinary issues. It's because of the end product we're trying to build in them that we're willing to put up a little fight in order to get where we're trying to go. We're not defined by being fighting people. We're not defined... The people that were involved in the walk for life are not, are not defined as fighters, as if what they love to do is fight, but their end goal is life. We're walking for life. We're fighting for something, and we'll fight against the people who want to destroy that life, but it's not because I love to fight. It's because I love life. And like we struggle with these things and struggle through these things, there are some times where there's a battle that needs to be fought, there is a warfare that needs to be fought. And, and Paul says to Timothy, there's a spiritual battle that is worth fighting. This is a warfare, son Timothy. This is a strategy. I mean, this is not just a one-time battle, but this is a warfare of life that's going to be worth fighting. The spiritual life, the spiritual battles that you will go through are not just these peak moments of life, but we're talking about this everyday, this everyday warfare that you're going to be fighting against invisible things. Those are the most important parts of your life. Those are the things that drive the rest of your life. This is a warfare that he says in verse number 18, I commit this, I char- this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. You have to war a good warfare. <laughs> This is a noble warfare. This is a good fight that you're fighting here, Timothy. This is something that you're going to have to attack and keep on attacking. It's not just going to be one by one victory, but this is going to be a lifestyle of fighting, but this is a good kind of fight. You won't be defined by the fight. What you're trying to accomplish is something greater than just the battle. You're trying to get through on the other side and accomplish something great, but it's going to ca- uh, cause a lot of people to stand against you. And Timothy, there's parts of your life, he says, that that by the prophecies there in verse number 18, I I trust that in your past God has has spoken to you. And and that might be a reference when he says talking about the prophecies, might be a reference there to the the moment when the church recognized the prophecies of Timothy and that that they prophesied on his behalf. It could have been referencing his ordination service when the church corporately got together and recognized there's something special about that man, Timothy. God is on his life. There's God, there's 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 something supernatural about the way God wants to use him in his future. And there's a young man who's totally devoted to God, and it's like the church church got together and the Bible talks about the ordination service where the church recognized that and laid their hands on them, essentially conferring authority upon that man to conduct ministry. And Paul says, based on those prophecies, you're going to have to go fight a fight that you know God is on your side on. You know that God's been with you in the past and you know God wants to defeat the enemy and you know it's a battle that's going to be hard fought and yet it's not a spiritual battle that's, that's won by physical uh, abilities. This is a spiritual battle that will be fought by spiritual means and you need to keep that in mind, Timothy. It's a good warfare. It's a fight worth fighting. When Christians line up against 
I mean, line up with God in his warfare, that's when we win those battles. And when Christians submit to God's warfare, then that's when he says, that's a battle worth fighting. And, and, and here's what we're trying to protect. Here's, here's the utopia that God has set up. Here's, it's not about just fighting for the sake of fighting, but verse number 19, here's what it is, Timothy. Fight this fight. Protect this, verse number 19, holding faith. Here's the end goal of what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to protect and, and put bubble wrap around and, and, and preserve this utopia of what I'm trying to protect. You shouldn't just be known as a fighter. This isn't just a good warfare because it's fun to fight the devil and punch him in the face. It's not about that at all. It's about holding faith. And this is the most important part of your life, not the fight, but the faith. The part about this is the goal of why we fight. This is the car that we're trying to fix. This is the, you're a mechanic, yes, but not just for the fun of being a mechanic, but for fixing your car. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what we're trying to have at the end is faith. And when you reference the faith in Scripture, many times you'll see it called the faith or just, or just faith here. It says it earlier in the chapter as well. This is referring to the collective of doctrines that, that Paul is saying. This is, this is God's teachings. This is the faith. This is when you are saved, when you become a Christian, you accept God's teachings for your life. This is a new lens of which to view the world. This is a lens now of faith, no longer of what pleases me, but what pleases God. And this faith is what we're trying to protect and guard against and fight for. That's a good fight. And, so verse number 19, holding faith and a good conscience. A good conscience. The drive behind most religions out there is because at, the, at my core I realize there's something broken in me. There's something that's messed up. There's something that I've, I've displeased the deity out there. And so there must be something about the deity that I can please them somehow. And I must be able to appease the gods. And so maybe it's presenting some rice before this idol. Maybe it's, maybe it's flogging myself in the back. Maybe it's traveling some, some distance to a holy city. And then I can appease my conscience. And then maybe the gods will be pleased with me. And religion is a religion of doing and doing and doing and trying to accomplish in order to appease this conscience. You know there's something nagging at you. And the Bible calls it sin. It calls it the sin nature. It calls it this awareness that there is somebody higher than us. It calls us the conscience, the awareness that we are sinners, that there's something broken in us. And yet religion will try to fill and salve that conscience through good deeds and through good works, and through going to a priest, and through confessions, and through speaking uh, uh, different quotations of Scripture. And maybe if you do enough of this, then your conscience can be appeased. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not true faith. True faith, when you truly understand the gospel, when you understand the good news of Jesus Christ, he is the only one who can take that sin away, and it's an ultimate removal of the sin not just, in, not just in the future of heaven one day, but he removes it from your life, nails it to the cross, and gives you Jesus Christ's righteousness. That's the message of the gospel. 
That's why it's such a glorious gospel that Paul can say, God changed me. He changed me and put me into the ministry. I was, I was the chief of sinners. I was the worst person who ever lived. And yet the gospel has changed me from the inside out. And praise the Lord, it's not about me doing religious things in order to accomplish this appeasement of the gods. It's that Jesus has already done it. And I just trust him on that. And salvation is not about appeasing the gods, but about accepting his payment for my sin and resting in that. And so it's no longer about, oh, I feel so bad for my sin. God says, no, if you have true faith, then it leads to this clean conscience. You, you, you know that you are still a sinner, that you still fail God, and, and you still sin against him, but you trust the gospel by faith that those sins are removed from you and that only the devil is the one that brings those up against you, not him. And by faith, you trust that, that God, I have the potential to have a clean conscience before you. I can ask your forgiveness, and on the authority of the word of God, you will forgive my sins. And that right there produces a clean conscience in me. And Paul says true faith is what we're trying to guard here, teaching people religion's not the answer, but holding faith and a good conscience, verse number 19, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. If you, if you ignore the beautiful message of the gospel, if you say, no, I've got to be able to earn my way to Jesus Christ, then, then Paul says, I can just, the way, the best way I can describe people's lives apart from Jesus Christ is, man, I remember two or three, four times I've been out on a boat. And I remember this one time when I was out on a boat and God told me we're going to wreck. I went to the captain and told him, we shouldn't go on this boat, we're going to wreck. And he said, that's okay, we're taking you on the boat anyway. And we get on this boat, 200 of us sailing through this, and, and, and day after day of rain and storm, and a couple weeks go by, and finally we beach up on this sand, and the front gets stuck in the beach, and the waves are beating against the backside of this boat, and our boat just, sh just shatters there in the ocean, and we make our way. I remember that just those, those floating debris and all 200 of us kind of rolling up onto shore. I remember that there was, nothing, there was nothing enjoyable about that process. I remember spending a night and a day in the deep just floating on driftwood. Shipwreck was not a new thing to the Apostle Paul. He'd done it three or four times in his life. And he knew what it was like to be out on the middle of, an ocean, middle of, middle of the sea with no sight of land anywhere. And to see such a great storm that it just rips a boat apart. And the only thing he has left is this little piece of driftwood that he's floating on. Sometimes all night, sometimes all the next day. And to see the people of his crew floating there in the sea beside him and to be washed up on shore with nothing, no provisions, no, no anything. He says, I know what that's like and it's not an, ex it's not an exciting experience. There's nothing fun about shipwreck. There's nothing enjoyable about not knowing what's below you. There's nothing exciting about that. It's romanticized in the survival stories, but we didn't all know if we would survive all the time, every shipwreck. And you say, when people reject Jesus Christ, when people reject the faith and the good conscience, who, who, who set that faith aside and think they can live their lives apart from Jesus Christ, clear teachings, 
The one who set those, those things aside in their life, he says, it's like what ends up with their life is just, their lives just go shipwrecked. Their lives just become damaged and destroyed. It's like they think they can survive without Jesus Christ. And, and, and he says, I've seen it happen over and over and over again concerning faith they've made shipwreck. They've caused such a destruction to reject the faith of Jesus Christ and think it will be okay and think I'll end up okay. And you say, that's, that's, maybe there's somebody in here who said, you know what, I'm living with the consequences of that right now. And my life feels like a shipwreck. Somebody in my life has thought that they could survive outside of God's protection. Somebody in my life thought they could go through this season of their life away from God and still be okay. But now my life is a shipwreck. I mean, pieces are just scattered everywhere. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if this person's going to ever come back or if she will ever accept me back. And my life just feels like it's shattered right now. And he says, you know what? There's seasons like that. And the people that reject God, they're going to have to go through that. Maybe you have that in your past where where you say, you know what, I am a living testimony of what Paul is talking about here. My life has gone through these seasons of shipwreck because I thought I could hold it together and realize that setting aside the faith, setting aside God's clear teachings, when I lived apart from Jesus Christ and disregarded His word in my life, I can, I can testify to that. That's turned my life into seasons of shipwreck. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But what he's saying here is, well, it happened to these guys, Hymenius and Alexander. And there's pain and there's hurt in their life. And, and what I'm trying to get Christians to understand is this doesn't have to be. The shipwreck of life does not have to be to, to follow Jesus Christ and hold fast to the faith that God is uh, giving for you. Then that's what we're talking about. Religion is... is thinking they can hold this life together as if this is, um, this is the only way. And there's people like Hymenius and Alexander who will say, no, there, there won't be a shipwreck. The only shipwrecks are caused because of God. And if it wasn't for religion, then we wouldn't have any of these problems out here. Religion is the cause of all these shipwrecks that are out there. And they attribute the evil of the world, the shipwrecked lives of the world, to a good, good God. Say, wait a minute, friend. There's, there's a little disconnect there of your understanding of Christians and your understanding of God himself. Because God's not the author of evil. God is not the one that even in the middle of this fight for what's right, he shows himself good. He's, there's these two leaders here that, that, yes, there's a fight, and yes, there's a battle, and you might think that God is so exclusive and so angry, and he wants to zap people and hurt people because he's, he's, that's just what he likes to do. And yet, Paul says, even in the middle of this, verse 20, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan. I say, okay, how is that a good God? If you read that and say, this must mean that, that God just, he, he is a vindictive guy up there in the sky. He does just want to zap people with his electricity. He, 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 he just wants to deliver people unto, unto Satan. I can't believe that, 
You're talking about a good God, a good Father who wants to protect people. There doesn't seem to be anything good about that to just, fine, I'll deliver him to Satan. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the end goal here? What's the purpose of this? Why would God do that? Why would he deliver somebody to Satan? Well, it's hopefully to get him to the place of faith and a good conscience. Hopefully, it's to get them to the place of of them recognizing that everything that God does is for our good and for His glory. It's it's a fixed car. It's a restored car. It's it's restored to usefulness is is what God is trying to accomplish. There's there's no good that comes from you becoming a pile of charcoal because it got zapped by lightning. There's no good that comes from that. God says, there is something that I want to to come from this. There is good, and there's there's residual protection over over my zapping. You say, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? He just zapped them, didn't he? Yeah, but after the long suffering of God. After after years of them standing against God. And even Abraham says, well, if if there's righteous people in there, can you spare the city? And God said, of course, of course. I will not destroy the city if there's righteous people in there. And over and over and over, there was this residual umbrella of protection because of godly people that were in there that God says, I'll continue to be long-suffering. I'll continue to suffer for a long time with this sin. I'll continue to put up with this garbage that's in their life. If they will respond to me, I'll give them a chance to repent and turn back to me. This will be a moment where I will put up with sin for a long time. But God will not suffer evil forever. And at some point, maybe there is a line that you can cross that that Paul says, here's some men who have heard the truth. They know what's right. I was there planting the church. When I left the church, I knew there were people that would rise up from inside the church and stand against the truth. These are some of those men who know what they're rejecting, and it's time for them to learn a lesson. And so... Paul says, here's these two men standing against and teaching false doctrine whom I've delivered unto Satan. So that, look at the rest of the verse. Even in God's judgment, there's mercy and hope. So that they may learn not to blaspheme. Even the hard hand of judgment of God, even the bringing down the hammer of of correction and disciplining of his child, even in the middle of that, the whole point of that is restoration for them to learn, to to be educated through a hard way that they would be restored. This is not a new concept in Scripture. If you chase uh, uh, Matthew chapter 18, that's the clearest teaching we have on what's called church discipline, the removal of somebody from a church body, the protection is, is over God's body, his people, the church, and being connected to that church. There's, there's some of that residual protection you can kind of think from God's, uh, God's wrath on your life. And he says, this is connected to church. And Jesus says, if there's somebody who offends you and there's this offense between brothers and, and you know there's sin in your life, then go to him one-on-one. And if he'll still not hear, hear thee, then, then take with you two or three others and go to him again. And earlier in chapter 18, Matthew 18, it's talking about the one 
little child who, who you should not offend. And then it talks about the one little lamb who, who you go leave the 99 and go search out to restore that little lamb back to the fold. And then it's talking about church discipline, that one who is rejecting God and standing against God. It says go to him and try to win him back and try to cause the offense to be gone. And if that doesn't work, take two or three others. And if that doesn't work, then take it before the church. And this protective body that God has around him by being connected to the church, if he will still not hear the church, then remove him. And he'll become as a publican and as a heathen man. God says in some ways what that is, is returning him to the realm of Satan. And that's not out of, that's not out of Scripture. You can study this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. There was sin in the church there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This man who was taken in adultery and the church was, was proud of it. They were excited about it. They thought they had the grace of God on their church for some reason. And he says, no, this must be removed out of your church. It's like a cancer. It's like leaven that will spread to the rest of the church and cause sin everywhere. You must have him removed. And what he says in 1 Corinthians 5 is the same thing he says here, deliver him unto Satan. But he says in 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of the flesh in the end that I might establish him. You can study this for yourself in 1 Corinthians 5. What God is saying is I'm going to remove you out from under the protective umbrella of the church and, 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 and put you back into the realm of Satan. First John 5 says this world is Satan's world. He is the controller of the world. And what he does is always evil. And being under his control will always bring things that are evil and hurtful and hateful. Being delivered unto Satan doesn't mean sending people to hell directly or anything like that. Being delivered unto Satan simply just means... Just like he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Does he want him to die? No, no, no. He wants his spirit to be saved. He wants his spirit to come back to the place of restoration, of, of, of saving his soul, of coming back to the place of closeness with Jesus Christ. And if he would not re, uh, hear the preaching of the word or respond to the conviction of the word, the Bible says there's sometimes these cases that need to be taken so far to the extreme that if they will reject Jesus Christ long enough, then he says, all right, deliver them out to the world and see how long they can they can last out there apart from Jesus Christ. And when their flesh gets destroyed, when they suffer the consequences of sin in their life for a little while, then hopefully that causes them to wake up and snap out of it. I've likened it in Romans chapter 1 to a tiny little dog on a leash. And you watch Caesar Milan shows, you have these little dogs that think they're great Danes and they're Doberman Pinchers and they're Rottweilers and they're pit bulls and you look at them and go no you're a Chihuahua you know Fido come on don't be pulling against this leash when they see a big dog across the sidewalk they think I can take him on I'm a pit bull I'm a Doberman Pincher I can take him on just let me at him just let me at him I'll go destroy that giant pit bull Romans chapter 1 says three different times where we are like that in our sin, where we're pulling against the leash of God, where we're pushing against his will. In some ways, God says, all right, I gave them over to their reprobate mind. In some ways, it's like he's saying, you're a little dog. I will release the leash and let you charge the Doberman pincher. 
and, and I will remove my protective and my restraining hand on your life and let you go live in sin and see how you like it then. That's the same concept of what Paul is trying to get across here. Delivered them unto Satan. Means that, all right, if you want to push against the leash, if you want to fight against God hard enough and long enough, then fine, we'll let you go out into the world and see if you like facing up against that Doberman pincher after all. Not so tough when you start getting the penalty of sin. I'm glad that we are grown up in a rickety old double-wide trailer. It didn't event, I mean, as soon as we had one little problem, it, it wasn't like, all right, we've got to call in a drone strike on 39330 Kimberly Lane because we have a broken window. The whole property's got to go. We've got to level it from, from the ground. That was never the case, obviously. If you have a problem, it's a chance to fix something. And so growing up, it was always the process of we've got, we got this trailer that we want to restore into something better and bigger and more beautiful. Restoration is the goal, not destruction. And God's not calling in a drone strike on your life if he sees some issue. What he's trying to do is say, look, wake up to my good, good will for your life. Here's the best way. Just restore yourself back into something fruitful. And that's my goal even for the most reprobate of people, that they'll learn not to blaspheme. That's my goal is not just a pile of ashes, but restoration and growing back into something that's useful and better than it was. And that kind of a fight is worth fighting. That kind of an effort of life, of our lives, trying to see people restored back to productive usefulness for Jesus Christ, that's a fight worth fighting. Listen, Calvary Baptist Church is not a perfect place by any means. Our church is no, there's, there's no perfection about our church, but I believe we want to try to fight the right kinds of fights around here. And there's fights that are worth fighting and they're protecting and doing right by. There's, we're just trying to get people to avoid the shipwrecks of life. We want to drag people out of hell. We want to preach the gospel. We want our ministries to preach the gospel. We want to go down to Pendleton. We want to go out on Saturdays. We want to teach people to carry tracks and, and spread the gospel to everybody. We want to, we want to rescue sinners from the destruction of the shipwreck of life that Satan says, I've got all of them. Say, no, we want to spend our efforts on preaching the gospel because God is good. God is good. That fight is worth fighting. I need to be in on that fight. If you're here thinking God is just up there waiting to zap people, say, no, just like, a, just like our Heavenly Father, He gives us a little glimpse of fatherhood through our own children. Saying, don't you... Don't you love your own children and you correct them and help them along the way to grow them into something better? And that's God's great intentions for you. His teaching, his protection, his helping hand. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what Missions Month is all about. That's what living a gospel-focused and a gospel-centered life is all about. That is the fight worth fighting. Stand, if you would, please. And in some ways, this is a call for soldiers to stay in the fight. This is a chance for you to evaluate your own role in that fight of saying, how am I contributing to this good fight? I see it as a good fight. I want to do my part to see people saved. 611 says that well in our hymnal. We're going to sing about that. Take my life, God. Let it be consecrated for thee. This invitation time is just a chance to respond to God. God's calling you to the fight, and it's a good fight. It's a fight worth fighting.
It's a fight worth being involved in. And so we're going to sing. We're going to have a chance to respond to God this morning. But then as we sing, this is, is our chance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for this invitation time. And then Brother Grissom's um, going to lead us in that song. Don't hide behind the hymnal. It's our chance to talk to God. If you need to just sit right down, talk to him in your chair or come up to these stairs here as an altar, as a way to make it feel a little bit more important, you might say. There's nothing magical about it, but it's a step. It's a step of humility, and we offer that chance every single Sunday, every single service. And so I'm going to pray, Brother Grissom, and then you sing after that, Our Father. I want this, the message of this song to be uh, truthfully sung, that all of us as soldiers, those of us that are Christians, are truly saying, God, take my life. Would you take my life? Would you let me be a soldier in that good fight? I want to do my part to see people not make their lives a shipwreck. I want to do my part to live by faith and a good conscience. And there's Christians all in here that need that reminder, need that, need that boost, need that shot in the arm to keep going another week in this fight when it sometimes feels wearying and troubling. And I, don't want, to, I want to help people avoid the snares of Satan out there. And the trouble that Satan brings to our lives is just endless. I don't want think people to think they can survive for a minute outside of your protection and your care. So bring us back to that place of just utter and complete dependence on you. We pray your help in these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. As Brother Ron sings, and you're invited to come Take at this time. My life and let it Sing that honestly to God. Take my life, dear God. Take my life.